All right, well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, before we get going here with our teaching, let's, we'll go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll go. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for today, your Shabbat. Uh, we thank you for this time where we can gather together in, in our various places here across Northeast Ohio, um, digging into your word, being together, being uh, shoulder to shoulder, uh, sitting together, and listening and talking and not, not only listening to each other, but listening for your voice, um, looking in your word, praying to you and being grateful to you for all that you've given us. We thank you for the gift of this day in which we do all those things. Um, you've afforded us quite a luxury and we do not take it for granted. So we thank you and bless you and pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so Acts 13 uh, before we get into that, let's review real quickly what we did in Acts 12 two weeks ago. Um, and I've made sure that there's sound this time. There wasn't sound for most of the video last week. So if you weren't here, you missed out on some really good stuff. But I'll review that real quickly right now. <clears throat> so Hanukkah, we just experienced. Hanukkah is a story of the Maccabees and, and how they... Uh, were victorious over the uh, uh, Syrian king and his army, and then they came in and uh, rededicated the temple. So it's a time of rededication. It's also a, a festival of light, like all this stuff. There's like there's all these good things associated with that event, with that holiday. Well, in uh, what what we don't often remember is that that began a 200 year period of blessing and growth and expansion of uh, the, uh, the Jewish kingdom. The Maccabees were part, were the beginning of a dynasty of kings. Um, it was uh, Judah Maccabees' brother who began the line of the Hasmonean dynasty. And it was a good dynasty. There was a lot of good things, prosperous. Everything was going well. This, of course, after 400 years of captivity. So the Jewish people come out of captivity. They win this decisive battle um, under the leadership of the Maccabees. And they enter into their own autonomy. They're, they're a nation now. They have a kingdom. This is great, right, what they've been praying for. Gradually, though, the quality of these rulers degraded until we get to Herod the Great, which, of course, is the first of the Herodian kings. We have the Hasmonean kings and then the Herodian kings. It's all kind of related. There's like two sides of, of this, this family tree there. But then the Herodian kings took over, and it just went south fast. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, it was at that time, it was talking about this time of just turmoil and, and persecution, lots of persecution. So last week, we, or two weeks ago, we, were, we talked a lot about how we need to keep an eternal perspective and that understanding that persecution is the norm. In, in human history, in the history of God's people, persecution is the norm. And that at that time, at the time of Acts, there were at least eight different groups of people who had it out for the Messianic community. We had the Herodians for political reasons, the Sadducees for political and theological reasons, the Pharisees, not all the Pharisees, but some of the Pharisees for political reasons, the Zealots for social and political reasons, the Romans, just the Roman citizens, for political and cultural reasons. Uh, there was strong anti-Semitism among the Gentiles, uh, so this is social and uh, racial, you could say. 
the defenders of pagan ways, this is a cultural and religious persecution, and then um, the, the magicians or the, the occult leaders, and we're going to see another magician here in this chapter, and that was for religious or philosophical uh, reasons as well. So all these, from all these sides, from all sides, and yet the people of God, the disciples of, of Messiah, could still live and be joyful and, and live out this messianic life. So we need, to, we need to keep that kind of perspective too, that we've been living in a, in a time of unprecedented lack of persecution in our nation, um, and has that produced in us a um, softness, maybe, or at least a lack of awareness that the reality is something not quite so pretty or, or, or as, as peaceful as we might think. Um, so that was last week. This week we're in chapter 13 where we see the beginning of Saul's first missionary journey. And it's, a, and it's an interesting one. Um, he's sent from Antioch and he ends up in a different Antioch. He starts out uh, being sent by the congregation where they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit who sends them. But then even along the way, not, not months into this journey, there's some, there's some turmoil. There's some things that are happening here that, that we would think, that doesn't match up if the Holy Spirit is so alive. And this is Paul, right, we're talking about. How could things just not go well? Well, this is, these are human people, right, just like you and me. These are humans um, who have their moments, and we'll see how that plays out here. Okay, so let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts 13. And I'm going to read through, and uh, I'll read through, and I'll pause to give a little commentary for some, uh, some verses that will give context. And then what we're going to do is I'd like for us to, I have a whiteboard set up here that you can't see on the video yet, but I have a whiteboard set up, and I want for us to like outline these speeches, the one that, that Paul or that Saul gives here, and then the two, two of the speeches that preceded in Acts, one of Stephen's in chapter 7 and Peter in chapter 10. We're just going to do a quick outline of the main points there, just so we can see what kind of preaching or teaching or proclaiming they were doing. And maybe it's something that we could keep in mind whenever we're witnessing to people, um, and we understand who our audience is. How could we tell the story in a way that's compelling? Okay, so chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> now there were in the congregation of, at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, and this is re in reference to his skin color. He was, uh, Niger means black, so he was a, a dark-skinned uh, 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 believer, um, or, or a, a Jewish man here in this congregation. Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaean, which is actually a, a Greek um, way of saying Menachem, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so this, this phrase here, worshiping the Lord and fasting, this is, this is what I think the NASB uh, translates it as. Uh, it's also ministering to the Lord or serving in the Lord's name. All of that is, in, is describing prayer. Prayer is a service of the heart, and so they are serving the Lord. So they're they are in the midst of prayer here and fasting, prayer and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so here is the long-awaited moment Saul has been preparing for and being sent. 
He was told many years ago that this is what his calling would be, and now is the time for him to do so. Remember also that apostle uh, means what? What does apostolos mean? Do you remember? (laughs) Sent? Emissary? Sent ones, right. These are the sent ones. And here it is, they're being sent. And for a congregation to be doing this, I think, is, in, is important. They were they are sent by the Holy Spirit, but there was also a congregation who, who did the sending. So they were sent by the Holy Spirit from this congregation, because they have to be sent from somewhere, you know, geographically. So this is where they're sent from. They're sent from Antioch. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Seleucia was an important port city at the time. It's where the Roman fleet uh, kept their boats in port, was in Seleucia. So it was, it was the place to go if you needed to go any other place by water. So that was where they, that's why they went there. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John Mark to assist them. John Mark, we saw in the previous chapter, it was his mother's house that Peter went to after he escaped prison. And he was there, probably a young man, still living at home. Um, he is Barnabas's cousin. And uh, probably, and he would eventually uh, go on to write the Gospel of Mark. So this is a very important figure, a little early on in his in his life, not a young child, but old enough to go with them. And it was probably Barnabas who was like, you know what, hey, let's bring, let's bring John Mark along. Bring him along. This will be a good trip for him. Um, not knowing, they didn't know what this kind of trip would entail uh, as far as where they would go even. So Paul, Paul, Paul was like, okay, let, let's, let's bring him along. We'll see how that goes. Um, <clears throat> now, what's interesting here, so if... If they're sent, here's a question. If Saul and Barnabas are being sent to the Gentiles, why are they going to places that have synagogues? There's there's a good reason for this, and it's it's logical. If they're going to reach the Gentiles, why are they going to go to places that have synagogues? We'll see this wherever they go. They're going to go to major metropolitan areas, large places that will have established Jewish communities. Why is that important if they're going to be going to reach the Gentiles? Dale. Well, first of all, they're going, to, uh, they're going to have to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And while they're, while they're in a, a synagogue, they will be meeting the Gentiles uh, that have adopted themselves in, uh, to that place. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, so they go to the Jew first, then the Greek, and they're going to, to be engaging with the, the Gentiles who have attached themselves to that particular synagogue. Okay, so what's different, and, and you're, 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 you're almost there, that's, that's, that's it, I mean, but what's different be, between a Gentile who, is, who has no connection to a synagogue because there's no synagogue there, and a Gentile who has a synagogue nearby. What's the difference between those two Gentiles? One has what, access. one doesn't. Access. These Gentiles who are, who are living in cities that have synagogues 
are already getting familiar and have become familiar with the ways of God, the people of God, in a way that Gentiles in completely pagan communities and cities do not. Paul doesn't go there. Or when he does, if he does, it doesn't end well, because it is all completely new. He's going to places where some of the work has already been done. Right? Yes. And can be, exactly, and can be maintained after he leaves. There will be a community for these people after he goes, after he makes this connection between the Gentiles and the Jews and how the Gentiles can serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There'll be a community there to serve them and to help bring them along. Yeah, that's, that's the main point. So we see this. Yeah, Doug. I'm also thinking more practical, like things are already set up, things are in place, hosting, lodging can be provided, food can be provided. They're on this mission. Right. Then they're going to go to where they can be received. Yeah, if they're going on this trip, they got to go where people know them and will know how to house them and, and, and hold them, uh, you know, keep them fed and have a place for them to speak. Yeah, because if you're going to somewhere that has no idea who you are or why you're there, and you're trying to tell them about Yeshua, <laughs> how well do you think that's going to go? Like, that's, that's going to be really hard. So God has built this into their, their missionary journey. They're going to go to places where they have established communities where Gentiles are already familiar with it even if on, on just a, a, a cursory or peripheral level. like they, they know about this God, or they know about this people. Okay, so moving on. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, this is on the completely opposite side, and, this, and Paphos is a, uh, is a Roman capital at this point, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Yeshua. What does Bar Yeshua mean? Son of Yeshua, son of salvation. Okay. Bar Yeshua was likely a former Torah scholar or rabbi, someone studied and, and well, uh, uh, well-versed in Scripture. For him to, to rise to this level of advisory or council position to a proconsul, means that he was smart, so he knew what he was doing. So he would have been trained as a rabbi. And because of his age and the time he was living, he, was pro- he may have been a contemporary of who? Saul, right. And Saul would have known about this, this fellow too. And, and so when Saul came, Elimas bar Yeshua would have, may have been shaking in his boots, Right. Because he, he probably knew of the reputation of Saul. And Saul would have known about this fella who had left and gone somewhere where he could have influence, um, pagan influence. Verse 7. He, this is Bar Yeshua, was with the proconsul, um, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This verse here indicates to us that they would have been in Paphos for some time, long enough for the teachings they were teaching to get to the proconsul. So they were affecting some change. This wasn't happening all real quick. They were there for a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, before the proconsul said, I want to hear what they have to say because what they're saying is having some effect on my people, right? Um, Sergius Paulus having Bar Yeshua as an as a advisor it was a common thing in, ancient, uh, in the ancient time. And it's good politics 
If you're going to rule an area of people that are not of your uh, religious persuasion or, or, or otherwise, you're going to need advisors around you of those groups to help you lead them well. And so for him to have Bar Yeshua, a magician, kind of an occult leader, as one of his counselors was, was common practice. It was common practice. Now, it, it didn't always stay quite businesslike, and that may have been the case here where Bar Yeshua thought he had more influence and maybe was, a, was able to affect more influence on the proconsul than was appropriate or, or, uh, or necessary. Um, and so this is, we'll see how Saul battles against that. He's having too much influence. But this is a common occurrence. Okay, so he's with Sergius Paulus. Verse 8, But Elemus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. In verse 9, But Saul who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Why did Luke choose to mention Saul's one of Saul's other names here. Because let's be, let's be clear here. This isn't a change of name. This is Luke also saying what, what Saul is also called. What is Saul's actual name? In Hebrew, it's Shaul. His name is Shaul. Saulus is a Greekized version of Shaul, Saulus. But he could also have another name, another Greek name, Paulus, which we have shortened to Paul, Saul and Paul. Saulus, Paulus. Why is he choosing to share with us one of his other names now, do you think? So he doesn't seem like uh, an outsider to the people. He's not in Jerusalem. Okay. Lydia? I thought maybe because he's, now he's taking the gospel. Yeah, Yeah. sure, right. And then from here on out in Acts, he's no longer called Saul. Luke refers to him as Paul from here on out. Interesting, isn't it? And in, in the Greek, it's Paulus, the same name as Sergius Paulus. Now, it could be that he had selected this name because of coming in contact with Sergius Paulus and said, oh, I'd like to have that name too. Like, this is, this is not something we're used to in our culture where we can have other names and be called by other names in other uh, contexts. But this was common then, especially for someone like Saul, who was a prominent leader in the Jewish community. He would have had contact with so many other people, and he would have had other names that they would call him by. So, depending on who he's addressing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, we, in our culture, we'll say, hi, I'm, I'm Timothy Pell. My friends call me Tim. It's like a nickname. My name isn't actually Tim. My name is Timothy. That's what's on my birth certificate, Timothy. A nickname is Tim or Timmy, but don't call me that. Only my grandmother calls me that, and she's gone on to heaven. So, um, <laughs> no one is left to call me Timmy. Um, okay, so moving on. But, but it's interesting that this is where this, this like, changes. And, and we have for a long time been taught that this is, was he changed his name because he's now 
a Christian, right? So there's all these, all these things that we just need to clear out and see, okay, what is actually going on? What is the reality here? And this is simply, he's now using his, one of his other names because he's going into communities and engaging with people who that would be more, he'd be more approachable with that name, with Paulus, than he would with Shaul, right? Okay. Now, he does something here that is a brilliantly witty cut. In verse 10, and I read it, what does he say to Bar Yeshua? Whose name means son of salvation. He says what? You son of the devil. You are not Bar Yeshua. You are Bar Hashatan or Bar Habayal. And we see in the previous verse, he looked intently at him. Can you imagine being in the presence of a personality like Saul, who had, who had done, the, done the work of moving up through the ranks of all these Jewish boys and men to get to the point where he was going to be, he was going to be a sage. He may have even been the, the chief rabbi in the Sanhedrin. I mean, he was on track. He was like, he was a cold-hearted killer, right? You know, like, just to use a modern phrase. He was like, he was, you did not mess with Saul. He knew his stuff. And if he looked intently at you, you melted in your boots. Think of what this magician, this guy who is who knew that he wasn't going to be welcome in Jerusalem anymore and probably tried to find, go as far as he could away without being too far, and he found Paphos, and he, knows, he, he nudged himself or cozied himself up to this proconsul. Now he thinks, now he's the top dog, and here comes Saul of all people. I mean, you, you can think of people in your childhood or in your youth where you're just like, man, I don't ever want to face that guy again or that gal again <laughs> and be like, okay, I'm in a place now where they're never going to be, and then they show up. And it's like, oh, no, like I thought... Right? And not only that, but Saul was kind of MIA for a while when he was in Tarsus. No one had heard from him. He was doing, he was studying, he was, he was keeping quiet where he was. And now he is, now he's been activated, right? Kind of like a, some sleeper cell spy who is old, in his old age, is reluctant to get back, like, like a Liam Neeson. Saul here is like Liam Neeson <laughs> facing, facing this guy who tries to oppose him and all he does is say, you son of Satan. And behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I, I kind of feel sorry for Bar Yeshua. <laughs> That he he had no chance. He had no chance against Saul and Saul's God. He was already probably intimidated and and petrified that, that Saul of Shaul of Tarsus was here, and now he's having he's fumbling around trying to get out of the place. Maybe he, I don't know. Maybe he had an accident. <laughs> he was so terrified and was just completely humiliated and embarrassed and went away. Then the proconsul believed, this is verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
So what we know about the, the proconsul Sergius Paulus is that he had property in Pisidian Antioch, which is where Saul and Barnabas are going to go next. The, the, there isn't much good reason, or any, there's no reason given, really, why they went there. But the fact that there was this connection, they, they converted Sergius Paulus, and they converted him probably in a significant enough way that he, he was the one who said, please go to Pisidian Antioch. I will fund your trip. Now, this is all speculative. It doesn't say this in the text. But we know this about Sergius Paulus. They had property there. So it's likely that Sergius Paulus was the one who said, please go. Go and say to me and, 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 or say to my people what I have heard you say and what the people in Paphos have heard said too. Please do this. Sergius Paulus in this moment is putting himself kind of at risk because to be a proconsul, you have to be wholly bought out to the Roman religion, to uh, all of the gods associated with that, and to, to stray a little bit could have jeopardized his position and other things too. So this is, we, we can presume that this is a significant conversion, that he is now sending Saul and Barnabas and their company to, the, to his hometown, if that's where he was from. We don't know if he's from there, but that's where he has property. <clears throat> Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So this is just north of Cyprus, north, uh, which would be uh, Turkey now, modern-day Turkey. The mainland, yeah, the mainland. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's, a, that's, a, that's just a few words. Luke doesn't get into it, but there's a reason. We don't quite know, but we can, we can talk about it. Why do we think John Mark left? Later on, in the next couple chapters, Paul, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark back on the trip, and Paul says what? No. He deserted us. Don't want him. So there's some kind of rift going on there between John Mark and Paul. Paul was young-ish, we can presume. And this is the first missionary journey. This is, this is, all of this is unprecedented. Think about it. This is unprecedented. Saul is this firebrand, intimidating, strong-willed figure. John Mark was brought by the insistence of Barnabas, most likely, their family. John Mark was youngish, maybe, maybe not, he was mature, but not so mature that he could handle all that was going to transpire on this trip. So why, why do we think John Mark left? Any ideas? And this is all just thinking out loud. What's that? It's all conjecture, right? But, but these are human people, and we are human people as well. And so there's things that we can, we can pull out of this. Why do we think John Mark left? One possibility could have been that uh, he'd heard that his mother needed help, and since he was a young man, he went back home to his family. Okay, yeah, he could have gone back home to be with his mother to help her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do we know much more about Mary, his mother? Was she a, was she a widow? 
I honestly don't know. I mean, because that, that's a valid point. If, she, if, if, it is, if her home is referred to as Mary's home in the previous chapter, it may be because she was now, she, she had no spouse now, and she was, the, she was leading that household. So it could be that he left to be with his mother, which for someone like Saul, who's just like, let's get it done, right? We've got, we got a job to do. Would, that, would he have been easy to accept that as a reason to leave on this very important calling from God? Maybe not. I like to think that because of the, the weight of this and because of the, the uncomfortableness of going into these places, John Mark just couldn't handle it. I think he was, I think he was not ready to deal with this. Going, going into these pagan places, dealing with Gentiles, maybe it was after that point that, that he had a problem with reaching the Gentiles in, in, in a way that, that Paul and Barnabas were about to make a clear distinction, right? He may, have, he, may have had, he may have taken issue with that. wasn't ready. He may have not been ready for that yet. And so he decided to go. Were you about to? I was just thinking earlier when I read uh, when the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas, just called John Mark. Right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, the Holy Spirit sent Saul and Barnabas on this mission. Now, they would have had at least John Mark. They may have had others with them that were just there to assist and help, and it, it's possible. Um, but you're right, John Mark was not called. This was, this was a, an, an addition, um, and maybe it wasn't so wise to be asking someone so young an experience to go. But it still resulted in, in a man who wrote one of our Gospels. So, like, this is all, it's, it's all good, but there was something going on. I think for us, it's important to understand that whatever it was, there was disagreement, and Saul hadn't let it go quickly. Because when, when John Mark was brought up again, Saul said, no, he deserted us. Like there, there, was, there was some bitterness there in Saul for what John Mark had done. Maybe John Mark was just like, you know what? I need to distance myself from this. Being, going across on this boat with Saul is, is difficult. Being you know, trapped in a boat with this man who is just like, he's awesome. I love him. But he, his personality, is, is, it's pretty intense, right? He may have, whatever it was, Saul, who was called by God, sent by the Holy Spirit to go do an amazing thing that was unprecedented in human history, Saul could still be angry, get bitter, cause a rift in a relationship that would eventually be mended when he's in prison. They do, they do reconcile. But this is important. This is important for us to accept. I think, we, I think we do accept it, but just to remind ourselves, Saul is not perfect. The leaders of our communities, the leaders of our congregations, they're not perfect. We can be called by God, we could be called by the Holy Spirit, but we're not perfect. We're going to, and to pray for the leaders of our congregations and our, and our communities. So this is, this is, I think this is good. It's good that Luke just truncated it, because I think Luke was trying to be kind to all parties involved. Because that's what you do to the people in the household of faith. Yeah, they had a disagreement, there's, there's more to that story there, 
But all that needs to be said is that John Mark went home. John Mark went home. Okay. One, one last thing. Yeah. I just jumped up to Mark chapter 1 to look around, and there's more demonic activity talked about in that first chapter of Mark than there are in most of the other Gospels uh-huh. combined. Okay. So John, uh, little John Mark may have uh, been a little braver than we thought, but he'd seen quite a lot in his, mm. in his time uh, following yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, hmm. All right, moving on. Verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Uh, just real quick, the, the trip to Pisidia and Antioch is, is not a pleasant trip on land. This route they took from where they landed to go north up into Pisidia and Antioch historically was known as a place, a treacherous place, uh, where thieves and robbers and, and weather would have been horrible, and there would not have been many places for them to stop safely for the night. So again here, this is, this, there isn't much told about that, but Paul in, in, in some of his epistles mentions some of his trips and the, the treacherous journeys he was on, and this would have been one of them and also why he would have been a little bitter that John Mark had left right before this really tough trip. I mean, I can think of backpacking trips I've been on. It started off, I went to Dolly Sods in West Virginia, and it started off with this like 12% grade for what felt like miles. And it was, I hated it. At the top of it, I would turn around and I would just yell at the slope I just walked up, like it, like it was its own fault. Like, how dare you, Hill, be so difficult, right? <laughs> but every time I go back to that, I'm just like, oh, here we go again. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, we're doing this together. So if any of the guys had chickened out at that point, I would, I would probably be a little mad too. But it was, it was not an easy journey, just going up to Pisidia and Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Here again, we see them. They, they know they're called to the Gentiles, but where do they go first? They go to the synagogue. Like that, that's, that's where the word of the Lord is read. Verse 15, And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Here we see what is the, the common, even today, the common flow of a, a service. The Torah is read, the prophets are read, and then someone speaks. And usually, even today, usually if there is a visiting dignitary, someone of great importance, that person will be honored by being asked to come up and speak on the portion. So this is an ancient practice, and it's still uh, alive and well today in, uh, in more orthodox congregations. And Paul... Saul, Shaul, was a visiting dignitary. He was an important dude, and they knew, they knew who he was. His reputation preceded him. So we're going to skip 16 through uh, 41. We're going to skip that, and if we have some time, we're going to do some whiteboarding here. What time is it? We may have some time. So going down to verse 42... Um, and just just high level here, in, in Paul's message, 
he's getting into the gospel message. He's getting into uh, the history of, of the Jewish people. He's getting into a lot of stuff here that, that's, a lot of it is, is not new, is building a foundation of, of trust, like I'm with you. But then he's introducing some new ideas uh, that could be controversial, but we'll see here in a moment how they react. Uh, and so, that, that, so his, his speech is done. So in verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, which is, I'm sure, an exaggeration on Luke's part, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So before we get to the next verse, is there, do we have any indication that anything that Paul said in the synagogue they had a problem with? No. Not about Yeshua, not about his death, burial, and resurrection. Like, none of this stuff that they have a problem with. In fact, they liked it so much, they wanted him to come back the next week. Opposition was from the outside. Towards uh, uh, Well, at, at, at this point, so before, before 44, in, in verse 43, 42 and 43, they're like, yes, this is good stuff, right? Come back and say it again. But then the next Sabbath, what happens? What's different in verse 44? What's different? What does it say is different? Who else was there? Almost the whole city. Of Jews? No, Gentiles. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So the Jewish people did not have a problem with Yeshua. What they had a problem with was Gentiles. And the, and the idea that the Gentiles could also be a part of this whole thing. This is not new. We've been seeing this. In, in previous chapters. What does that say about the people who are accepting Yeshua? Yes, this is great. Come back. Like, if, if this is what you say, if he is the Messiah, the promised king, the savior, and then all it takes is for, the, for there to be some Gentiles present, for them to start, what? Contradicting and reviling what Paul was doing and saying, what does that say about how much they actually believed what he was saying? It doesn't look good, right? I mean, they might, maybe they, they on the face of it, and intellectually, they're like, yes, this is great. We're also, of course, remember historically, we're also at a point of waning in the glory of, of Israel and these kings, the Herod's, the Herodian kings are just, it's, we, we had it in our grasp. And now the, the, the rulers are just horrible and atrocious. Here is word of, of a, a new king. Yes, please, right? 
okay, resurrection, right? Yet all this, this is great. Come back and say this again. We need for there to be a revival. But it's just for us. Who are these Gentiles? Oh, well, if they're, if they're in on it, no, I don't want any part of it. None at all. All you say, no. I think that this, this is important for us to remember because of the state of the world right now. I've heard it said that the Jewish people are, are devout Jewish people. Especially those who are, I mean, I, this is me just speaking off the cuff here. Let's say that the most, the most learned rabbis, the most staunch um, followers of God's Torah, his will, they're, they're not people who do things be, just because they want to. They're, they're people who do things because they see it in Scripture, and, and they want to follow what is right. And that if, if Yeshua as the Messiah is presented to them in a way that can be assimilated into their knowledge and understanding and wisdom, they will, like that, be like, yeah, okay. We know this is happening. We've seen, we, I've heard reports, Grant has heard reports. Many of, of, of us have heard reports of Jewish people, Jewish rabbis who are like, Yes, he is, he is the Messiah. Because they, they're so familiar with God's word, they, they know how it all works, and that is the piece that has been missing. And they can turn on a dime and be like, yeah, all right, he's the Messiah. And that that's what's going to happen eventually. That the Jewish people will turn en masse to Messiah. And it'll be an amazing thing. But here is the opposite, right? Here's people who are just like, yeah, we'll accept this. This is great. Oh, this is really cool stuff, right? Come back and say it again. But then seeing Gentiles, they weren't ready for it then. And most, most maybe aren't even ready for it now. So, Okay, so finishing out the chapter here. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it, is, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you since you." Thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So here it is. Paul and Barnabas was like, okay, all right. This is now clear confirmation. Okay, we really need to be talking to the Gentiles because you're not getting it. But where do they still go on these journeys? They still go to places where there are synagogues, where there are established Jewish communities because that's a, that is a prerequisite for the kind of... of um, uh, soil, good soil that they can then plant seeds in. But their but their their focus is now honed. Yes, Lydia. Yeah, this is a people who, who, over the centuries, part of their identity is the persecution, is the suffering that they have shared together, right? Going back to that backpacking trip, right? It's a, it was a hard trip that I went on with a couple friends. It was just arduous, right? And we're connected now 
as brothers in a way that no other man could join our group and just be that because we suffered through something together. They can, they can come along the trips too. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. It'll be a great time. But we, we are bonded together in a way that we, want, we actually want to protect in a strange way. Like, because of our shared suffering, we want to protect that unity. And so anyone else coming in and, and, wanting, and even thinking they could be a part of that, that little group, it's like, no. I mean, we're, we're glad you're here, but you're not one of us. I mean, that sounds harsh. We wouldn't say that, but that's, that's the feeling, and that's kind of the, the result of that kind of experience. So yes, it's a hard pill to swallow, and it seems too easy. Like, oh, they can just come and be a part of it? Like, like that? Like after all that we've been through? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light, for the, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Um, so this devout, devout women of high standing, this, is, this shows you just how integrated these, these communities were. These were not Jewish women. These were devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So this, this were, these were the, the political class, the Gentiles, the, the Greeks, the Romans, whatever. So they had relationships. They had, like, there was, there was peace. There was peace there, and they had relationships. And so they used that, those connections with, with governance to, to affect some negative outcome for Paul and Barnabas. And then they were, they were shipped out. They were driven out. Verse 51 uh, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. Interesting chapter. Uh, any questions or comments about um, other stuff in there before we quickly outline or try to outline these three speeches? Anything else? Any questions? Yeah, Doug. Yeah. Um, a parable came to mind that I don't have it memorized, but in that instance where you said... They were happy that one week come back, but then the Gentile element came in and they said, Rock, it reminded me of the parable where the late coming workers. Oh, right. Yes. Were the same as the ones that had been there. Yes. Right. That's good. We're bringing this guy in an hour. Yeah. And he's going to do the same as me that I've been here this long. Yeah. I don't know if there's a relationship to that. that that's, that. But that's what, it, that's what I... Yeah. That. Yeah, if you didn't hear that online, Doug mentioned the parable that, that uh, Yeshua gave of the, the workers who didn't work as hard as the rest, but they all got the same wages at the end. And the people who worked harder and for a longer world is like, what? Like, that's not fair. Like, we worked harder. We, we, we're more invested in this than they are, and you're going to give them the same? Yeah, I think that's. Well, I think there's a connection. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, so now what we're gonna do, and I, I may, I may end the live stream here, but I'm gonna tell you who are watching to do this.
That's what I'll do, just so I don't have to worry about the cameras and everything, and, and so we can do this. And have, we have 12 minutes. I think we'll be able to do, we'll be able to do it. Um, it's not going to be real hard. Um, what we're about to do is we're going to look at, I'm going to give you what the outline is of Saul's speech in Acts 13 here. And then we're going to go back and look at the speeches of Stephen in Acts 7. So I need someone to go there now. Acts 7, who, who's, going to, who's going to take that? Raise your hand, someone. Dale, okay. Go to Acts 7, Stephen's speech. And then in Acts 10, Peter gives a speech to, uh, uh, I believe, Cornelius. And we're just going to see how those are structured, just loosely how those are structured. Um, and the point here is that there, there are some similarities here. So we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, I'm going to start writing on the board. Um, I encourage you who are watching to do that, to split it up into three, look at these three speeches and, and look to see what the similarities are, how, it's, how they start, where they go to in the middle, and how they end is basically it, those three, those three parts, the beginning, middle, and end. Look at that and then discuss how it is we could be devising our own ways of presenting this message to people depending on the audience. Like, how, how is it that I, if I was to ask, if I was asked about my faith, I was asked about Yeshua, what would I say? How could I say it in this similar way, this beginning, middle, and end um, that we'll see here? Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. So thank you all for watching, and we'll see you all next time.